Hi everyone and welcome back to the Mind Yourself podcast in association with Motus. So today's podcast is going to run through my current experience as a PhD student and my motivations for starting a PhD. So the reason why I wanted to start this PhD is because I wanted to research the longer term effects of the Motus program. I also wanted credibility behind being the head of a mental health education company and so I felt a PhD was a good way to do that. You see, it's fine if you read one research paper a year and then regurgitate it in several different ways online, but that doesn't make you a leader in the field. In order to be respected amongst academics, you need to publish research and also have a good insight into the whole field of research. On the other hand, if you spend four years studying your specific subject and getting papers published, as I mentioned, you can come out of it with a good bit of confidence that you understand the field. And there's a funny thing I want to highlight, and this is something that would be relevant to everybody. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it's something you're taught at the start of the PhD. And what it states is that over time, your understanding of the field shifts from, I understand it well, going into it, to I understand nothing, to eventually it's complicated. And it is complicated. Psychology is the study of human behavior, and human behavior is complex. Unfortunately, the wellness industry has gotten a hold of psychology and tried to make complex information into easy to understand language. And this has been beneficial in some aspects, like, for example, breaking down stuff like lifestyle factors or like mindfulness uh, or the trials and tribulations of cognitive behavioral therapy. But there are other areas that are overly simplified. And I'm going to use that example of cognitive behavioral therapy. You see, that has now been broken down in some cases, not all cases, but in some, to just think positively and positive well-being can be achieved with some avocado on toast. And so my point is that the reason why someone might pursue a PhD is because they are passionate about a certain area and they can squeeze past the bullshit and get a true understanding of the complexity of their field of interest. Now, there will be plenty of people who will pursue a PhD because they want to be lecturers or professors, or there will be a lot who went who want to go into research because they don't know what else to do. But I think, and I could be wrong on this, that you should pursue a PhD because you want to make a positive change within your research field. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean you're going to change the world. Some people might picture a eureka moment during a PhD, but in reality, those moments are very scarce, if not non-existent. So thinking back to when I first started, I felt I had a good research proposal for a PhD, so I consulted a researcher who I worked with before, and she agreed to co-supervise me. I then had a look for a second supervisor who was interested and a leader in the field of mental health education. Of course, you can also just have one supervisor, but when your research is multidisciplinary and that's becoming more common, it's good to have experts in two different areas. So when picking a supervisor, I was told again and again that what is really important is that you pick someone who is nice and will want to help you rather than somebody who's the best in their field. A PhD has an awful impact on your mental health, which I'll discuss in a few minutes. So you want the right support network in place and your supervisor is definitely part of that support network. Yes, it's great if you can get somebody who um, can put your name on loads of publications or somebody who's um, very high impact. But if it's at the cost of you dropping out, it's just not worth it. So if you can get an impact, 
high impact supervisor who is also nice, fantastic. But if not, choose a supervisor who you get on with, um, not only academically, but also um, day to day because you need them there when you need help. What is also common in deciding a PhD, which are um, is to do a PhD, sorry, with your undergrad or master supervisor because you already have a relationship with them. And on rare occasions, you could be asked by a researcher if you would like to do a PhD with them, for example, at a conference. In any of these situations, the norm is to make contact with your desired supervisor and pitch your research idea with a research proposal, an academic CV and an example of your academic writing. The research proposal should include a small literature review about your topic of interest and the design of the proposed study. This is to demonstrate that you've put some thought into your research rather than just thinking of an idea. Your academic CV should then include your education, teaching and research experience to date. And finally, the piece of academic writing could be a publication that you co-authored or an assignment that you did very well in. Your supervisors will then decide if they are happy to work with you. Once they agree, you'll have a preliminary meeting, get registered, and then begin discussing possible funding. Your supervisor might already have funding secured, but if not, in Ireland, you'll apply to the Irish Research Council or IRC postgraduate funding. This is quite an extensive application, but it is a great way to structure your research project. You can only apply twice and the deadline is around the end of October, and you usually find out if you were successful or unsuccessful in February or March the following year. Your application is marked on a score out of 100 and broken up into four different sections, which are the project itself, the suitability of the applicant, training and career development and environment. Of course, the first two are weighted heavier, but you obviously want to score high in all. What's really important to note is that you can only apply twice. While it, it does happen, it's less likely that you're going to receive the funding in the first year but if you um and if you are successful the funding then starts the following september anyway so you're going to have to self-fund the first year regardless i think it's around twenty four thousand a year plus a small budget for conferences and equipment and then f your fees are also covered if you're unsuccessful most universities have fee waivers um that you can apply for there's also an irc enterprise award which includes funding if you're working with another organization and some could even get philanthropy grants although i think that's quite rare if all of these fail you'll just have to self-fund and maybe take on some extra teaching hours modules wise you'll only have one or sometimes two modules a semester these are the PhD core modules, such as Introduction to Postgrad Research, which just explains the PhD process, Entering the Academic Community, which discusses networking and conferences, and Research Integrity, which covers ethics. Towards the end of the doctorate, you'll then probably have a portfolio and workshops module, which kind of prepares you for tying up your PhD and next steps after the PhD. If you didn't do a master's, you'll have to do additional research methods modules and maybe some extra theory-based modules that you can pick up, up from. Um, but if you have a master's, you're just required to do one extra research methods module to meet the required credits. You then have the choice to teach. Uh, this involves assisting lecturers in labs or tutorials, and you can also mark papers around the end of each semester. This is obviously more valuable for those who are unfunded, but if you are funded, it's still very valuable as teaching needs to go down on your academic CV. 
So, um, my next section that I want to discuss then is kind of what is expected of you year to year. So, there is kind of a disconnect here um, whereby I think when you first start the PhD, you have the idea that there's a lot expected of you. But generally, supervisors, like the ones I mentioned, nice supervisors, um, only expect you to do enough work year to year. There's this kind of idea that, oh, I need to have four publications, one each year. Um, but in reality, a lot of people I know, they only publish towards the very end of their PhD in year three or even in year four. So while it's very, very important not to fall behind, it is reasonable the expectation of you and it's important to remember that because sometimes you feel like you should be doing more but in reality you're probably the same as most of your peers there'll always be one or two of those peers that will have loads of publications by year two um and it's very very important you don't constantly do that upward comparison um just kind of stick with what's the general average of where people are and that's kind of a good idea of what's expected um, while everybody's research project is going to be different, um, you generally would be expected to start with a review. The reason why a review is so useful is because a review kind of gives you insight into the field that you're interested in. And so this could be a scoping review, which is just trying to look at the general area that you're interested in and then kind of advise future research. Systematic review is obviously more statistical and more precise and quantitative. Um, and then there's sometimes even narrative reviews where you just kind of give a commentary on um, your field of interest. So um, even though a review can be quite lengthy, I do think it is a great idea because it kind of gets you, gets you going on a better idea of how to see the field. And it gives you a broad understanding of the field because you will be after reading all the literature. Then um, it's probably likely then that you'll join some sort of a research lab that your supervisors are engaged in. Um, this is a good way to obviously meet your other PhD um, PhDs from different years as opposed to just your own cohort. And what the research labs generally involve is perhaps like um, reading a paper related to your field or related to your lab and then... Um, and then like discussing it afterwards, it could be working on a paper. It also gives you the opportunity that if you have any presentations coming up, um, you can basically pre present to your lab group and they can give you feedback, which has been majorly useful. And then another thing is attending conferences together as a group because um, it's always nice at conferences to have a base. So that's something great. Um, yeah, and then obviously then moving on to conferences. Um, I had a meeting with a PhD student who was a few years above me when I first started and she actually uh, regretted going to too many conferences. So it's important to get the balance here. While the conferences are great to go listen to great research and great talks in your field and also to network, it's not the um, be all and end all because what can sometimes happen is you end up going to loads of these conferences and obviously it's a great way to travel too, but you're not actually getting your work done then. So it's very, very important that you balance your writing with your conferences. Um, again, like it's great to go and like show off what you plan on researching, but it's very, very important that you get those um, research papers submitted so that you actually have results and to discuss um that's really really important you find the balance with that 
but the conferences are generally fantastic. Um, if you're going by yourself to a conference, it can be a bit awkward having to put yourself out there, but um, it's just something you have to do. And um, you kind of learn over time when you go to a few that you kind of make, you get friendly with people who will be obviously in your field. So you kind of see them at the next conference then, and then it's constant interaction essentially. Um, but obviously as well, having a group to go with is fantastic too because it kind of gives you that reassurance that um, you don't have to be networking all the time because that's okay. And also you're more than likely at a different country or you're like enjoying the company of people who are interested in your research. So it's very, very important. You enjoy the conferences too. It's not all about work. Um, and then in relation to the networking, conferences are probably the best way, but very, very effective way of networking also is is genuinely just reaching out to people, making contact with them by uh, via email. But also um, it doesn't always have to be conferences. It can just be general talks that you can go attend. And that's also how you meet new people. Um, if you kind of branch out within your own faculty or even within your own PhD cohort that can also help you introduce um meet new people so that's another great way too um and then just in relation to um it's not just about passing the modules and writing papers so each year you'll have a progression and what this progression basically involves is you sitting in front of two or three um, people in your faculty, including your supervisor, and giving generally a 10-minute presentation about the progress you've made each year and um, like just your research area, uh, project in general. So where's it going and what have you done so far? And what essentially the faculty are evaluating is if you have made significant progress and also will you finish on time within the four years? And so um, that's really, really important, not only for the faculty, but also for you, because you need a realistic timescale as well. Um, the IRC application I mentioned makes you include a Gantt chart, which kind of gives you an indication of when you're going to do each uh, project, each year work packages in your PhD. So I think that's a great way to kind of um, to prepare you for the progression and the progression is also helpful it can be a bit daunting obviously when you first have to sit down and look at where you are but it's really really helpful in the long term and so obviously you have a progression each year and then the final year then um, when you hope to finish you um, you do a viva and so the viva is essentially a presentation with your supervisor um, and then an external exam examiner that you can choose so um, yeah, and then basically you have to wait outside the room and then you find out if you've passed your Viva and um, that's kind of it. Um, so one last thing I do want to address is um, if you have started a PhD and you're kind of feeling intimidated, um, two things that will be very, very friendly to you, um, two tools that I found very useful is I love PDF.com. It transforms PDFs to Word. And then also Canva is massively helpful. So I'm sure everybody by now is aware of Canva, but if not, it is a like digital design website that essentially allows you to create nearly anything now. And um, it's a great thing to use for PowerPoints and presentations and posters. Really, really recommend it. Um, common question I'm going to get, um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's getting to the stage that this is actually ridiculous, but... Um, like some people will go through a PhD to get into clinical 
And so do I think that this helps my clinical chances? The, the answer is definitely yes, because clinical psychology is the uh, scientist practitioner role. So research plays a big, big part in the clinical. And so obviously it's great to get as much clinical experience as possible. But if you're after doing a PhD, you have a good idea of the research field. So that's obviously going to help you get into clinical. There are some universities in the UK particularly that actually emphasize the importance of research. So they could be ones you could also target. And particularly, you can actually be doing a PhD in clinical research, which is obviously ideal in that situation. Even if you're not doing it in clinical um, research, though, what I also recommend is you can kind of shape and be reflective on your research topic and how it relates to what you're interested in. So, for example, my topic is social emotional learning and emotion regulation. And while that doesn't on paper seem relevant to clinical, it really is because what I'm looking at is basically um, psychoeducation. So how to teach children about psychological techniques, essentially, and then emotion regulation is obviously relevant to children and adolescents also. Um so answering the question, yes, it's a long, long road, like probably longer than needed, but a PhD will definitely help with um, clinical psychology doctorate or educational or counseling. And I know a lot of um, I've worked with a lot of people who have done PhDs and also uh, clinical doctorates. So it's not that uncommon anymore. Um, again, just a long road. And then the final thing I want to make everybody aware of, because this is a topic that comes up a lot for PhD students, but they don't know about it until they start, is the mental health PhD students. So it's quite amusing at the very start of the PhD, you get this big, massive framework of what's expected within the PhD. And in the very, very bottom corner, there's this tiny percentage that says work-life balance. and you see, PhD students are quite rare because they're not regularly nine to five. They're kind of work when you can. And while this sounds great and you think, oh, I can choose my hours, it's actually kind of the opposite because you kind of have this, um, I'll call it GOMO. You have this guilt of missing out whereby you constantly, constantly think you should be working even when it's completely acceptable to be off. And so, for example, like, if you got up at, let's say, eight o'clock and worked until eight, when you finally finish, you're still kind of thinking, oh, maybe I could just do this or maybe I could just do that. And particularly on the weekends, this affects you that maybe when you're off doing something that's positive for your mental health in the back of your head, you're still thinking, oh, maybe I should be doing more. Um, and then, as I mentioned already, you kind of have this comparison of there's always that those few students that are way ahead of you but you only focus on them as opposed to comparing yourself to those who are behind you. So it's kind of difficult um, to manage. Now, the other thing as well that's probably not discussed enough is um, you're working in front of a laptop all day and you're trying to be as productive as possible. And so it's not about quantity of time, it's about quality of time. So you could, you could be very productive and do three good hours, but you still feel like you have to stay there and that's an issue. And because you're in the la on front of the laptop all day, like you can go. I have done this in the past, particularly because of COVID. But you could go a few days without leaving the house and uh, without going outside. And like because you're so involved in your research, you don't have the awareness of your own health or your own self-care. 
And so that can be quite difficult. And this is something that I don't think is emphasized enough. Like it's kind of a buzzword in the research area where it's like, oh, uh, work-life balance. But they don't actually tell you how to do that or how to balance it. So um, it's very, very important. What I recommend is before you start a PhD, you should actually make a self-care plan of um, of staying to nine to five Monday to Friday, for example, taking the weekends off and learning to manage that guilt of I don't need to be working all the time and avoiding comparing yourself to people who are ahead of you because there will always be people ahead of you and that's okay. So um, that's essentially everything. Now, I will also mention um, requisite that I am only halfway through my PhD, so <laughs> things could change very rapidly um, in the next year or two, but I'll be sure to keep you updated. If anybody has any questions, um, if they were just starting a PhD or if they are thinking about starting a PhD, please, please get in contact. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have and mind yourself. Thank you.